Let's pray. Father in heaven, that's a, that's a fingerprint for the Messiah written 700 years before he was born. And we see Jesus in that text. If we see him anywhere in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, we see him there in Isaiah 52 and 53. And yet Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the hero of, of every text of Scripture. And this one we have in front of us this morning, there's, it's, the, it's the same reality. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see who you are uniquely for us in this passage. And you are for us in this passage. I ask that you would minister uh, grace from this text. I, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in the passage and then look to you. Build us up, strengthen us, um, warn us, fit us, not only for the week of mission stretched out in front of us, but fit us for heaven, I pray. We thank you that all of that is available through the work that we will study right now, your work as a great high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. This time I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 31, and if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles that's found underneath the seat in front of you, today's text can be located on page 882 in the red Bibles, page 882. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, it's clear that God's ancient covenant people were led by men who held one of three distinct offices, prophet, priest, and king. There were prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, Amos, and Malachi, prophets were the preachers of God's word. There were priests, priests such as Aaron, Eleazar, Eli, and Abiathar. Priests were mediators of God's presence. And then there were kings, kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah. Kings are the rulers of God's people. Now, on, on good days, these three offices worked in tandem with one another. On bad days, these three offices worked at cross-purposes with one another. But what is clear from the pages of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, it's that prophets, priests, and kings were designed to be distinct, separate, interdependent, yes, but unquestionably independent from one another as they ministered to God's people. And it's this reality, this ancient, um, to use American language, separation of powers, as it were, what makes what the author of Hebrews has to say in the opening moments of that book all the more stunning. Uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I'd never noticed it before this past week, but there in the opening verses of Hebrews, we see the author making a major league statement, of course, about the person and work of Christ in not just one, not just two, but in fact all three Old Testament offices. In the history of theology, it's known as the Munis Triplex, which I think is a terribly unfortunate name because it reminds me of a a nasal decongestant that you might pick up at Walgreens today. But it's called the Munis Triplex. It's Latin for threefold office, or even better as it's sometimes known as history, the triple cure. The person and work of Christ is good news for sinners because he offers himself as a triple cure to us, prophet, priest, and king. Now, in our text before us this morning, Luke features Jesus executing one of these offices in particular. Actually, it's probably fair to say that Luke highlights this office of Christ more frequently than the other gospel writers do. Luke 22, 31 to 38, is loaded with with rich theology and practical application for our lives. There are many ways that we might seek to mine the gold that's here, but here's how we're going to do it this morning. Here's the big idea today. Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is a king, but we can thank God that Jesus is also our great high priest. Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is a king, but we can thank God that Jesus is also our great high priest. So just two points stretched out in front of us this morning. Both of them drawn from the text, both of them intimately related to one another and to this issue of Jesus as our priest. And both of them are of shattering importance for our lives as well as for our mission as a church to be and make disciples of Jesus. So let's get started. Point number one today. When you are tempted to overestimate your personal resolve for Christ, remember, Jesus is praying for you. When you are tempted to overestimate your personal resolve for Christ, remember, Jesus is praying for you. Would you follow along with me and I'll read Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. Luke 22, 31, Jesus begins with these solemn words from the Savior to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have, you deny three times that you know me. In verse 31, Jesus refers to Peter as Simon. Not just Simon, but Simon, Simon. So he calls Peter, not by his nickname, but by his given name, and not just once, but twice. When the double direct address is used in Luke's gospel, you know that the speaker typically means business. 
So when the windstorm descends on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are beside themselves with panic, they cry out to Jesus in Luke 8, 24, Master, Master, we are perishing. When Jesus is at Bethany in the home of Mary and Martha, Martha's doing her Martha thing, right? And he begins to bring correction to her and he says in Luke 10, 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and anxious about many things. And it's not just in personal address. Uh, Jesus, when he prophesies over the entire city of Jerusalem, he laments in Luke 13, 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. So Peter here is addressed by his given name, and it happens in the double direct address. And you better believe Peter is all ears. What Jesus must have to say to him is a big deal, and that's exactly the way it turns out. Verse 31, Jesus goes on to say, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's important to mention something that, that turns up in a footnote if you've got the ESV. It's, it's here in the Greek, but it's, it's obscured in the English language. If you've got an English Standard Version, you'll notice verse 31's got a footnote, and it's that the word for you in verse 31 is in the plural. In other words, though Jesus is obviously speaking to Peter, he's actually speaking about all of the disciples when he's thinking about this sifting. The word for you here in verse 31 is the word y'all. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, every one of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. That's what Peter's hearing from Jesus. Now, you'll notice in verse 31 that this is something that Satan has demanded. Isn't that what Jesus says? Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you. What does that tell us? It tells us that Satan can't do this unless God grants him permission to do so. Satan is so beholden to God, and God is so sovereign over the evil one, that the devil quite literally can't do anything anything to us unless he asks for God's prior approval. I'm not sure who said it first, but I like the sentiment behind it that all of our sufferings, all of our trials, all of our adversities, all of our pain, all of it is father-filtered. It's a good phrase, father-filtered. Do you believe that? I hope you do. It's what the Bible teaches You'll be happier if you believe what the Bible teaches, especially as it relates to God's absolute sovereignty over the suffering in our lives. And in this scenario, it's Satan's desire to sift the disciples like wheat that his father filtered. So what does that mean? Well, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach describes it vividly when he says, the picture is of a grain of wheat in a sieve where the head of the grain is taken apart Bach says, our English idiom of picking someone to pieces or taking someone apart has a similar emotive force. Satan would like to bring Peter and the disciples to ruin and leave them in pieces, exposing their lack of faithfulness. And you know what? To a certain degree, Satan got what he wanted. Peter is going to deny Jesus in a matter of hours. The disciples are going to abandon Jesus. Judas has already betrayed Jesus, and he is prepared to turn him over to the authorities in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll end up committing suicide. I'd say Satan was fairly effective. 
Satan's getting a lot done here. And you know what? Satan's getting a lot done here, too. I don't mean our church uniquely by saying that, but I do mean that the broader evangelical church, both locally and nationally, and he's done it so quickly. Less than five years ago, Bob Glenn, Mark Driscoll, Tully and Chavijan, Bill Hybels, and James McDonald were all still preaching in their original pulpits. Each of these men have meant in different ways a great deal to me personally, and I owe owe an enormous debt to every single one of them one way or another. Nevertheless, each were exposed. Each were found out. They were sifted. And not just them, but their churches. Redeemer, Coral Ridge, Willow Creek, they're all still recovering. Harvest Bible Chapel is simply reeling this weekend. And then there's Mars Hill Church. It it doesn't exist today because of the sifting of Mark Driscoll. And none of us would have guessed it five years ago or reacted any differently than Peter did in verse 33 when he says to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Well, it turns out he wasn't ready. It's interesting, the commentators evaluate Peter's reply to Jesus on the spectrum from overconfidence on the one end, that's Daryl Bach, to stupid intoxication of human presumption on the other end, that's John Calvin. I'm not sure how you read Peter here. One thing I'm sure of, though, is that Peter didn't see this coming. In other words, Peter's not a hypocrite here. Peter is very sincere. He's sincerely wrong, but he's sincere. How about you? How many of us have let Jesus down in the last seven days? Maybe even the last seven hours or seven minutes. How many of us have been tempted to overestimate our personal resolve for Jesus Christ? We come out of church last Sunday hearing, I mean, can I get, a, can I get an amen? One of the finest sermons on servanthood you're, you're likely to hear. And we are ready and armed for a week of servanthood. Best intentions. We just overestimate our personal resolve for Christ. Somebody doesn't do what you want them to do. Something doesn't work out the way that you want it to. You're unable to have that thing you wish you could have. And servanthood is out the window. Or maybe, maybe you weren't pressed on in any particular way. Maybe you just blew it this past week. You knew exactly what you were doing, you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is so very weak. Have you been where Peter is? I have. I know what this is like. You do too, if you're honest. So what can we do? We can look to verse 32. Luke twenty-two thirty-two contains what is possibly one of the single most encouraging verses in the entire Bible. You say, that's, that's hyperbole. Okay, you, you decide. You tell me. 
22:31. Simon, Simon, we'll put it together here for context. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Is that not glorious? Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a king. But we can thank God. We can thank God that Jesus is also our great high priest. How so? Well, here in verse 32, it's his intercession for Peter that makes him a priest. It's his prayer ministry for Peter. This, in part, is what makes him a priest. This is one of the things that priests do. Several features of verse 32 we should take note of. First, notice that Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's the present perfect tense. He doesn't tell him, I'm praying for you, or what we say, I'll pray for you. That's what we say. When you're Jesus, you say, but I have prayed for you. Implication, it's a done deal. It's a slam dunk, Peter. Anybody see the slam dunk over the weekend at the dunk contest? The guy that went over Shaquille O'Neal and put the ball in the Man, slam dunk prayer here. Peter, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times that you know me. But Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I've prayed for you. Secondly, notice... But Jesus says to Peter in verse 32, when you have turned again. Some of the old translations say, when you are converted. Now, with a grain of salt, it's, it's a pretty good translation. Peter isn't going to get converted in the future. Peter's already converted here. But what it means is repentance. Simon Peter's a believer here, but on the other hand, he's a believer that in rather short order is going to stand in pretty serious need of the gift of God's repentance of the grace to turn and convert. And so Jesus just looks into the future and assures Peter that that's going to take place even before he denies three times that he knows him. What an extraordinary kindness to Peter. Lastly, upon his converting, upon his returning, upon his repentance, Jesus says something he'd like for Peter to do. Verse 32. Verse 32 boils down to three words strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Isn't that incredible? He hasn't even repented yet. He hasn't even sinned yet. And Jesus has got ministry lined up for him on the other side. Reminds me to a certain degree of the dynamic that we see in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Aren't you grateful that's how biblical counseling works? God doesn't comfort us simply so that we can continue to accrue comfort to our own personal private comfort account. Rather, God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And that's, that's the design here. By the way, uh, though the two yous in verse 31 are plural, the four yous in verse 31 are singular. He's only talking to Peter now. 
What this means, of course, is that though Satan is about to sift the disciples something awful, Jesus has plans for Peter, plans that involve his future ministry to his brothers in the present and then to the church as a whole. Even though he's about to sin against Jesus big time. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, you strengthen your brothers. And is this not what Peter did with the rest of his life? Peter sinned, no doubt. Then he repented, and then he spent the rest of his life strengthening his brothers and sisters. And when you know Peter's story, and you think about this exchange with Jesus in particular, it puts a whole new spin on how you read a passage like 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 11. Listen to how many common themes are here. Peter says from experience, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, same word, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The point is this. Just because you're down doesn't mean you're out. Did you sin last week? Did you fall? On the authority of Holy Scripture, I say to you this week, this morning, get up. Stand to your feet and get walking again. How can we be confident that we could do that? Because he's praying for us. Hebrews 7.25 assures us that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for the saints. It's what he lives for. Have you sinned? Did you repent? Well, if so, Romans 8.34 asks, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Present continuous verb. And then in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 20, Jesus says to the Father, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples at the table. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be us. Jesus is praying for us. In his classic systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff notes this. He says, it is a consoling thing. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present in our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, that he prays for our protection against dangers of which we are not even conscious 
and against enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice them. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a king. But we can thank God that Jesus is our great high priest. So when you're tempted to overestimate your personal resolve for Christ, remember, he's a priest. He's praying for you. Second and final point today. When you are tempted to overestimate your cultural welcome because of Christ, remember, Jesus died for you. When you are tempted to overestimate your cultural welcome because of Christ, remember Jesus died for you. And it depends. You can, you can make two different points by emphasizing died or you. You can say, Jesus died for you. Or you can say, Jesus died for you. And that's kind of the way I mean it in this second point. Priests don't simply pray. They offer sacrifices. Jesus is a priest not only because of his intercession, but because of his oblation or his, his offering of himself. We won't linger long here, but let's read the text and make, make an observation that I think is going to be helpful for us today. Look with me at chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is a strange passage. On, on the best of days, this is a little bit difficult to make heads or tails of. And unless we understand it rightly, that is, unless we connect it with the passage that we just read, we're going to have trouble making sense of why it's here. In verse 35, Jesus asks his disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? That's, they say, nothing. Okay, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the first mission that Jesus sent them on in Luke chapter 9. Back in chapter 9, Jesus is explicit when he tells them. He tells them in Luke chapter 9, verse 3, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And why? Because at this point, they are to rely upon the goodwill and hospitality of others. They should anticipate more or less a welcome from the culture. Chapter 10, in the sending out of the 72, similar scenario. Chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. In fact, three of the items that Jesus references here in verse 35. And why? Same reason. Jesus instructs them to depend upon the generosity of the communities in which they're ministering. But now we find ourselves on the eve of his crucifixion. And his tune is changing here. The marching orders are being tweaked. Verse 36, he says to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What's he saying? He's saying they better buckle up. These things are going to get bumpy really quick. 
The disciples cannot assume that from here on out they're going to receive a hero's welcome upon every town that they enter. And the reason for that is explicitly given in verse 37. Note the four. This is why one of the most important words in your Bible is the word for. It establishes cause. For here means because. So he says to them, from now on, don't look to others to care for your material needs when you minister in my name. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What's he getting at? What he's getting at, he says in John 15, 18, and following to his disciples, where he says to them in the upper room, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or as Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10, 25, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more those members of his household? Now, the matter of the swords is interesting. Um, Jesus says in verse 38, it is enough. Is he saying that's plenty? Two should be enough to fend off the whole Roman Empire. Maybe. Or is he saying, enough of that? That's enough of that kind of talk. Some English translations take it that way. Now, the commentators, interestingly, are totally divided down the middle. And there may be a third way to take it, too. Either way, I don't think this verse settles the self-defense gun ownership debate. I don't think it does. I think you can settle that with other passages of Scripture, but I don't think this one weighs in real heavily on it. What is clear, what is heavy here, is that Jesus is definitely encouraging them to be prepared for resistance, to be prepared for suffering, even death. So what's the principle of application here? Well, let's revisit the main point. When you are tempted to overestimate your cultural welcome because of Christ, remember, Jesus died for you. A generation ago, not even less than a generation ago, claiming to be a Christian and identifying with a local church like ours earned you some immediate cultural credibility. Today, you could argue it's exactly the opposite. What I mean is claiming to be a Christian today and identifying with a local church like ours can earn you some immediate cultural discredibility. In case you haven't noticed, the word evangelical in our culture means something akin to Christian jihadist, okay? Friends, the conditions in our culture are becoming increasingly inhospitable to gospel advance. I trust you're discerning that. It doesn't mean we don't press forward, but it certainly means that we do so wisely. Even since last month, it is amazing how quickly things change. Even since Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, just a month ago, the, the abortion debate in this nation has been dialed up after the sermon on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It has heated up to a temperature far hotter than it was four weeks back. 
we now have state legislatures and government officials aggressively pursuing explicit late-term abortion protections, far beyond the point of viability, right up to and in some cases after the point of birth, which, by the way, is infanticide. And most of the news didn't blink when the governor of Virginia said that. It's like we're already out of control and Satan somehow found a sixth gear on the abortion issue over the last month. Here's where we find ourselves, right? And not only the, the, the national abortion debate, but here at home in Minnesota, we need to continue to watch the state legislature very, very closely. If you don't know about House Bill HF12SF83, let me just tell you about that. This is a bill that just passed through the Health and Human Services Policy Committee that if it were adopted would be the first step towards sanctioning churches like ours with counseling ministries like ours if we were to provide or rather charge a fee for counseling from a biblical worldview to a minor struggling with same-sex attraction. This would extend even to the sale of booklets like the ones we offer in Fellowship Hall for free right now. That just passed in the House. It's on its way to another committee. It'll be in the state Senate soon. And of course, it's not just state and national political issues. It's day-to-day mission that we're most focused on. Let's not kid ourselves. 2 Timothy 3.12 is still true. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, finish it for me, will be persecuted. You will be. If you seek to get on your knees for your list of five and move your feet toward your list of five and open your mouth to your list of five, what's likely to happen in the process? persecution. And what are we going to say in that moment? I hope we would say with the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body that is the church. I wonder how many of you have thought about that verse before and stumbled over it like I have in the past. This is, I think, the key to this passage here. We rejoice, we say this to the culture, we rejoice in our sufferings for the sake of the culture that in our flesh we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that Christ's afflictions were somehow deficient. That is, that on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. There's nothing that Paul's adding to the value of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's not what's happening here. This language of filling up what is lacking Christ's afflictions is in-house language that Paul uses in one other letter, and and we can untie the knot this way. In Philippians 3.20, Paul is commending one of his friends, Epaphroditus, to the church in Philippi. And he says to them, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. This is Philippians 2.30. Philippians 2.30. Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service to me. And what's interesting is what Epaphroditus did was he visited Paul in person. Philippians 4.18, Paul makes it real clear. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. What's the point? Well, the point is this. Our neighbors have never seen Christ crucified. They weren't there to witness the sufferings of the Savior. 
And yet Paul says we can rejoice in our sufferings for the sake of those in our community and we can fill up in our flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is, when we move into people's lives willing to receive suffering and adversity for the sake of the gospel, they see a picture of the gospel in action. And it's interesting. This is exactly where we stick. I was talking with my daughter about this yesterday in my own weakness in evangelism. John 12 42 to 43, it says that many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it, so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see the issue here? The issue isn't just fear, it's that we don't want to be put out of the synagogue. Why don't we want to be put out of the synagogue, the polite relational relationships of the West Tonka area? Because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. But if we understand that pressing into people's lives, like Jesus did, is going to look like suffering, it's going to look like adversity, well, then people see the value of Jesus. They see a picture of the afflictions of Christ. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. When the church experiences persecution in the midst of our mission, the world looks on and becomes a witness to the wounds of Christ's body. They see the value of your Savior. They conclude that he's worthy to follow, even to persecution, even to suffering, even to death. So when you are tempted to overestimate your cultural welcome because of Christ, remember, Jesus died for you. Will you suffer for those on your list of five? Well, let's review. Jesus is a prophet, And Jesus is a king, but we can thank God that Jesus is also our great high priest. When you are tempted to overestimate your personal resolve for Christ, remember, Jesus is praying for you. When you are tempted to overestimate your cultural welcome because of Christ, remember, Jesus died for you. He died for you. Next week, we'll take another step closer to the cross as we come near to the Mount of Olives once again. This time in particular to a a geography that is hallowed ground. It was Sinclair Ferguson who once called the place one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. So practically speaking, if you've ever felt alone, if you've ever been faced with what amounts to nothing short of an agonizing choice, and if you've ever wondered where God is in the midst of it all, and you wonder if he could ever understand or appreciate or affect your situation then you're going to want to join us next week because next week we go to Gethsemane. Right now, let's pray.